Let me ask you this. You're listening to the NK News podcast, so you know more about North Korea than most. But how about the South? To really understand what's happening on the peninsula, you need to know about South Korea. And now you can, through our new Korea Pro news and analysis service. This is not your average news service. It's a thoroughly researched analysis of South Korea's politics, society, and economy from an international perspective. But you know what the cherry on top is? The absolute lack of commercial influences. No ads, no sponsored articles. It's just pure, objective analysis by a team of qualified specialists. And the best part? As a listener of this podcast, you get a 25% discount. All you have to do is use the coupon code PODCAST during your sign-up. So head over to careerpro.org slash podcast and start your journey with CareerPro. That's careerpro.org slash podcast. and welcome to the NK News Podcast. And today for our short pre-interview interview, I've got Shreyas Reddy here. Hello, Shreyas. Good to see you again. Good to see you as well, Jacko. So we're going to talk about two of the most prominent themes of the last week or so. Uh, the first one is the, the uh, multiple closure of North Korean embassies around the world and seemingly a bit of a, a shake-up in the foreign ministry, uh, a redeployment of resources. So uh, tell us what's happening. What's the big overview? Well, we've, like you said, we've seen a number of closures. It began with Ugandan government-owned media reporting that North Korea was shutting down its embassy in Kampala, mm. seemingly in a bit to increase the efficiency of its operations. And then two days later, same reports came out of Angola, essentially. North Korea was shutting down its operations. In the case of the Ugandan one, they said that they would move their operations to Equatorial Guinea, just continue relations with Uganda from there. And on the whole, it does... So from East Africa, way over to West Africa. Yeah, effectively. West Africa, yeah. yeah, and it's a little curious as well, because right next to Uganda, you've got Tanzania, where which is another country where North Korea has long had an embassy and maintained relations. Mm. So it's a lot of, uh, raised a lot of questions about the fate of North Korea's other embassies in the region. Right. So... Also, you've also got language issues. I mean, Uganda is an English-speaking country. Equatorial Guinea is a Spanish-speaking country. So, well, it'll it will be interesting to see where uh, what comes next. Uh, yeah. uh, and essentially, it does seem like so. They what they said is it's in a, a bit of increased efficiency. So they're going to be handling a lot more of these operations remotely, but they aren't discounting diplomacy. It's not like this in the end of diplomacy. In the case of both the Ugandan and the Angolan announcements, it sounded like they still have hopes for continued engagement, ah. just in a different manner. So it seems that North Korea's reducing the number of embassies, but it'll maintain the outreach from those locations. So it's one of the possible implications is that it could be due to just financial challenges. North Korea has had economic concerns for the last four years, in particular thanks to the pandemic, but even before that, sanctions were already taking their toll. And maybe the foreign ministry just does not have the resources it does at this point to warrant that level of engagement. Yeah. So we might see a few more in the coming weeks. Certainly there are indications that North Korea uh, has also shut down its embassy in uh, Spain, uh, shutting down its consulate in Hong Kong and a lot of other countries in Africa and elsewhere. 
Yeah, Spain's an interesting one. That was the target of that attack a few years ago. The sort of, well, uh, what was it? It was, it it was, was like a, raid. a fake robbery disguised to cover a defection that didn't end up happening. It was that was certainly an interesting incident. But even before that raid, the the embassy was already perhaps low priority for North Korea because ever since Spain expelled the North Korean ambassador in late 2017 mm. amid. Uh, sanctions and uh, North Korean missile and nuclear tests. I think essentially uh, North Korea had already uh, ceased to regard that as a particularly important one. Right. We've had an, uh, so a former North Korean diplomat even told us that essentially it was already, it made very little sense to them politically or economically. And the economic part is an important aspect yep. for North Korean embassies. Yeah. yeah, we did see back in the late 90s, well, in the mid 1990s during the uh, the famine, that uh, around 10 embassies worldwide were closed down. And, yes. uh, and in 2008, when they closed the, the short-lived embassy in Australia, they said that was for economic reasons yep. as well. And we do know from not just Taeyong Ho's memoir, but other books too, that uh, generally speaking, North Korean embassies are expected to be financially self-supporting and in fact, not only sustaining themselves, but sending money back to the motherland. Absolutely. Many North Korean embassies, that is a, f a part of their function as well, that especially when it comes to North Korea's income, quite often they end up acquiring materials, acquiring revenue, sending that back to uh, North Korea. This has been uh, what's been reported for many years in mm -hmm. many countries. And certainly it does appear that there have been tighter sanctions in since 2016-17, and right. that enforcement across the board has made it much more difficult for them to also generate that additional revenue. So again, that's where you're saying how much uh, po uh, point is there for them to continue maintaining all these embassies when not when they're not perhaps generating as much as they used to. But again, that could be one of several factors. We've, we have also seen North Korea has gradually decreased its diplomatic engagement in general, even before the pandemic, mm -hmm. when it just sealed itself off from the world. I think ever since the Hanoi summit, when things went south, North Korea kind of went, retreated into its shell a little bit. Yep. And diplomatic engagement came to be restricted to a f select few countries. So I think this is part of a bigger picture. And you also got to say how much it, it'll be interesting to see how North Korea, as it now starts to reopen how much it will engage in those other countries also there are still questions about when other countries will be allowed back into north korea when they'll be able to resume their diplomatic operations their their embassies so you think we'll see a greater redeployment of north korean diplomatic resources into countries like china and russia where it is easier to do trade well there certainly is so there are uh, reports that uh, uh, there are indications of a wider dip, uh, North Korean diplomatic reshuffle and reallocation of res resources. Where they, that will be remains to be seen. China and Russia would certainly be... Uh, mm, obvious choices. Ob yeah. And I think to some extent, uh, certainly in the last few countries, uh, last few years, uh, when a lot of North Korean diplomats could not go back to Pyongyang, mm. countries like China would have been an alternative. Right. So it does make closing the Hong Kong consulate a bit of an unusual decision, though, doesn't it? Especially, I mean, Hong Kong, it's it's not that far from home. Yeah. It's a good trade hub. It's run by the PRC now, more or less. Yeah. Any any thoughts on why Hong Kong was chosen to close? Honestly, there is very little clear reasoning for that. Uh, I think even 
China essentially said, we respect North Korea's decision, but they, there weren't really any particular reasons given for it that were clear-cut. So uh, it's something that we, perhaps in time, we will see a, uh, them shed a little more light on their reasons, see mm. what comes out of it. But at the moment, all we can really do is wait and watch. Right. Wow. Okay, that's very interesting there. The uh, So the, the possibly retreating back into its shell a little bit, focusing more inwardly. Uh, the second big theme this week is the uh, the release of the midterm report by the United Nations Panel of Experts on North Korea. And that, uh, uh, for those who want to know more about what the Panel of Experts is and what it does, go back to episode 304, where I interviewed the former coordinator of the Panel of Experts, uh, Eric Pentonvoke, about how that all works. But uh, what's... Uh, What's the news about the latest report that's come out? Well, I think it is a long report, uh, including annexes. It's over 400 pages. But at the same time, one has to realize that the panel at this point over the last few years, they haven't really had a chance to go into North Korea. They're largely reliant on information that's coming to them from other sources, usually what member states report open source reporting and satellite imagery and details and other tools like that. So certain areas, perhaps investigation can be a little hampered and a lot comes down to how much others are willing to cooperate with them. And But other areas, for example, let's say maritime uh, issues, shipping, tra- uh, that aspect is something that does tend to take up a fair chunk of the uh, reports mm, uh, contents. Identifying ships, where are they from, who owns them, when exactly. do they turn off their trackers, what are they doing in ship-to-ship transfers, that kind of thing. That exactly. A lot of photography and analysis in those reports yeah. about that. And so the panel tracked, uh, for example, uh, it said North Korea has acquired at least, uh, I think, 13 freighters and one tanker, mm. added them to its commercial freight, uh, commercial fleet just this year alone. And it's a big increase. Yeah, that is a big increase. And overall, it's brought it up to, I think, something like 52 since 2020. Wow. Uh, wow. So it's, and many of these are required from China, although China certainly has, so it didn't, it does say that the some of the reporting in the panel's report is inaccurate and does not necessarily reflect the reality of the situation. Right. China is obviously not on board with all the, the conclusions, yeah. although there is a Chinese representative on the panel of experts, right? Yes. But uh, but the Chinese state hit back and said, uh, we're uh, enforcing sanctions, we're fully compliant, we're doing all that we can. Yeah. Uh, there's nothing to see here, basically, yeah. is their and message. That's essentially it. And there was the same for other areas as well. So, for example, the, some member states uh, may have alleged, uh, well, did allege that there were other illegal tra- tra- transactions, perhaps uh, financial transactions, cyber transactions taking place within China, and China, uh, in its report, reply to the panel, said, "No, we have found no such evidence of any such activities mm-hmm. in the country. So a lot of this, at the end of the day, comes down to who says what, and perhaps those wider tensions that we also see at international level also play out in the report's composition. And there will always be, I think, in the absence of on-the-ground uh, confirmation of men, of what North Korea is doing until people can go in, they, it will be hard to certainly verify a lot of these things. But the most we can do, and certainly what the panel is doing, is trying to keep an eye on what the open source information says, what is happening, just keeping a list of these where North Korea may possibly 
violating sanctions and trying to work with member states to address those issues and get to the bottom of things. Did any other countries, perhaps those starting with the letter R, uh, release any statements after the panel of experts report saying that uh, this is not true, uh, this didn't happen? Well, I think certainly depends on the story, but there would be some, for example, where, uh, again, with certain transactions, again, with the cyber, with uh, other kinds of sanctions, evasion techniques where the various countries, so China, Russia, and others uh, would have said, this, uh, we have found no evidence of this. This, mm-hmm. not, this has not really happened. And even some other countries, perhaps, uh, for example, in the case of North Korea's overseas IT workers, some of them, those cases were linked to Laos. So mm-hmm. Laos got its own little s- small section uh, in the report where Laos did not actually respond to the panel or uh, mm. t- uh, tell them what's going on. So I think essentially there are North Korea still does have close relations with those countries, of course, and you can't, certainly can't necessarily conclusively prove anything at this point, but there has been a lack of uh, confirmation, lack of verification from those sides, or in some cases, denials, as in the case of China and Russia, saying what these other countries are alleging. We refute them. Mm-hmm. It did not happen. Does the uh, report give any uh, suggestions or recommendations on how North Korea's violations of UN sanctions could be better, what, restricted, foiled, stopped, slowed down? I think at the end of the day, we also need to recognize that this is, with the UN report, there are a lot of competing interests at play. And there are certainly some areas where they outline measures. Uh, it, different themes, different measures, will uh, different domains uh, have a different level of detail. So in some cases, they would be in a better position to say, this is something where you, this is a clear vi- a violation or this is something where more needs to be done to monitor this. We'd want uh, countries to step up. But in many other cases, it just feels like a c- compilation of lists of incidents mm-hmm. and you can't, and saying, okay, we haven't actually heard back from the relevant member states or they're denying it. And they do have some recommendations here and there, but at this point, many of them tend to feel a little more generic depending on which domain it is. Some of them are a little more, shall we say, they're perhaps trying to reinforce the messages from earlier reports. Because again, going back to what we said at the start, this is something that has been going on for a while and the panel has not necessarily had a chance to examine what is truly going on that's new in Mm -hmm. North Korea. So much of the report goes into uh, reiterating old cases that perhaps they haven't yet had a conclusion on, that they would like to see uh, more information on that they're still investigating. And so the recommendations also reflect that where we're saying we want to reiterate that we want countries to step up in enforcement of these sanctions. Yes, at the end of the day, that comes back to what Eric Penton Vogue said in my interview with him, that it's, it's up to each individual member state of the United Nations yep. uh, to, to police the sanctions, and, and where the sanctions fall down is where member states stop, uh, stop implement, implementing them yep. or executing them. Uh, well, thank you very much for coming on the podcast today, Shreyas, and telling us about those two big stories. Stay tuned, because after the break, I have an interview with American academic Jacob Reedhead about the politicization of North Korean human rights here in South Korea. And that's an interesting interview. Thank you for having me.
Imagine having the most wide-ranging news, analysis and opinion on North Korea at your fingertips. Sounds great, right? Well, it's possible with NK News. They publish a truly diverse selection of unique articles every business day and provide you with valuable newsletters and alerts. Opinion writers and journalists include regular podcast guests like Andre Lankov, Jongmin Kim, Chad O'Carroll, Colin Zwerko, Niels Weisenzer, Peter Ward, and Shreyas Reddy. And because I know you'll love the product as much as I do, here's something special for you. Use the code PODCAST to get a $100 discount on your subscription. Redeem this podcast-only special today by visiting nknews.org slash discount. That's nknews.org slash discount. So what are you waiting for? Sign up for NK News today and get ahead of the headlines on North Korea. For today's long interview, I'm joined by Dr. Jacob Reedhead, currently an assistant professor of Asian studies at National Chengchi University in Taipei. He obtained his PhD in sociology from Stanford University in 2020. Jacob has spent much of his adult life in Korea and speaks fluent Korean. In 2008 and 2009, he spent six months in North Korea monitoring a USAID food program. And we're going to include a link to his uh, webpage in the show notes. Hi, Jacob, and welcome on the show. Thanks. What you didn't mention in your intro was that I've been a big fan of yours over the last few years ah. your, with your running these podcasts on NK News and, and all your other, other ventures. So, so I'm happy to be here with talking with you. Excellent. Oh, thanks very much. Long time listener, first time caller. So, Jacob, I think it's best to start with some clarification of terms. And I'll do that by way of your backstory. As I mentioned, you spent six months in North Korea monitoring a USAID food program. Was that a humanitarian project or a human rights project or a bit of both? That was a humanitarian project. The program was approved by USAID and administered by five five NGOs, including Mercy Corps. I, I was representing uh, Mercy Corps. In that ah. So it wasn't, yeah, it's a food program, humanitarian aid program. How do you draw the line between humanitarian and human rights or where? Mm. <laughs> well, I guess. I guess I I like the formulation that civil and political rights versus economic, social, and cultural rights. That's one way that that, pe that people draw the line, and I think that generally corresponds to different humanitarian. I, I think people I think uh, people who would side with the or who favor um, economic, social, and cultural rights would also be aligned with humanitarian aid. Would would see humanitarian aid as a form of kind of grassroots human rights, whereas people who favor civic and political rights of a more top-down and legalistic form may not see humanitarian aid as a form of human rights. So that's how I would. Right. You've, you've kind of preempted my next question, which is that yeah, human rights are often divided into two groups. And as you've just mentioned there, you have the economic, social, and cultural rights, which uh, in your paper that we're going to talk about later on, you uh, shortened to ESCR. And then you have the civil and political rights, which you shortened to CPR. Is that a natural division into those two groups, or is that an artificial and arbitrary distinction? That's a, that's a good question. I you know I don't have the answer to that. I mean, you could probably guess from my paper that I believe this division may have been reified by you know partisan politics. Mm. In, in my mind, there's no reason why you couldn't one couldn't embrace all versions of rights mm. kind of holistically. You know, from top down legalistic approaches, bottom up humanitarian aid approaches, but the, 
the two do tend to get divided when politics get involved. Have they always been divided that way? I mean, I don't recall the uh, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights dividing that way, or am I misremembering? <laughs> I also don't know, you know, going back that far, I'm not sure. But I would point to um, Andrew Yeo's paper, his his book, was it Network Activism in North Korea? Uh, it's, a, it's a book that uh, I, I published a chapter in that book, but Andrew wow. Yeo... Andrew Yeo's chapter and uh, his his uh, co I think he co-authored the the introduction with uh, Daniel Chubb, but he researched the kind of historical divide of, between those two camps in the United States, like back in the 1970s when there were two different congressional committees dealing with human rights, at one Republican and one Democrat, and and mm-hmm. he kind of tracks tracks it back to that where the where the Republican committee was pursuing civil and politi- political human rights to kind of criticize. As, uh, countries we didn't like, like Iran and and so on, and the Democrats were pushing a more humanitarian version of it. And I think so. I mean, that's that's. I don't know if it goes back further than that, but that's definitely kind of a parallels, like what what I point to. You know, what I what I've identified in Korea. Give it, uh, give us that year again, because I, I missed it the first time. The division that Andrew is talking about is in mm-hmm. uh, in the 1970s. Starts 70, in the 1970s. Okay. Yeah. And the and the Democratic committee, I, I believe, was eventually kind of dissolved. So the 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 Republican committee, the more kind of civic, the the committee that was following the top down approach was more long lived than the other one. So he kind of points to that as when civic and political CPR became more kind of hegemonic in the at least in the United States. But now let's let's not get ahead of ourselves. You've already mentioned the word yeah. hegemonic. <laughs> but uh, why do you call civil and political rights top down? I think the strategies for so civic and political rights include things like political freedoms, you know, religious freedoms, media freedom. So these things are usually associated with governments and government institutions and laws. And so when these rights are not present, you know, if they're suppressed or not preserved, usually the, the strategies for trying to ensure these rights are legalistic. Mm-hmm. They aim at like governments or regimes or laws or policies in order to to ensure those rights. So that that's why I think the CPR tends to be associated with top-down uh, legalistic institutions. Okay, right. I see. Now, you've just recently published a uh, an article in Korean Studies, and uh, we'll share the link in the show notes, called Decamping the Partisans, U.S. Hegemony and South Korea's Divisive Discourse on North Korean Human Rights. In this paper, in, or in writing this paper, what is the question that you tried to answer? I try, I think... I tried to debunk the idea, you know. I, I guess I guess this is this is one of those uh, like propositions where you know everybody thinks that it's that the division in human rights is caused by X, but it's actually caused by Y, right? Ah, so, so what is the X? What do people normally think it's? So I think people when they look at human rights, they either look at human, you know, they look at human rights, the field of human rights at face, they take it at face value, and they say, oh, you know. If there's a division in the approach, you know, if there's a division between civic and political rights, CPR, and then these economic, social, cultural rights, which, as you pointed out, is arbitrary, that it must be somehow that division must arise because people have different views about human rights. You know, mm-hmm. some people think that CPR are more important than ESCR, or some people prefer the strategies employed by some people prefer legalistic strategies over, you know, humanitarian or grassroots strategies. So that's the X, right? Okay. And- in the TLDR short version, what's the why? What actually is the that thing that uh, causes the difference in approaches on North Korean human rights? I 
point to partisan politics. I think it's partisan politics. Now, you're talking about South Korean partisan politics or U.S. or both? So my, my, I mean, I think it's both. Uh, and again, I, I meant, I'd point to Andrew Yo's paper. Yeah. Andrew Yo makes the argument that the human rights were kind of divided by partisan politics in the United States. I make the argument that this was also true in South Korea. Yeah, along, you okay. know, conservative and progressive camps. Now, to bring back hegemony into it, you basically summarize in the paper that it, it's South Korean political attitudes towards U.S. hegemony. So what is U.S. hegemony? How do you define it and how can we recognize it when we see it? So I think in the paper, I don't know exactly how I word it. Do I say hegemony is the power to influence policy and political action, something like that? Mm -hmm. I think the, 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 the real critical point here is that when I'm, I don't want people, you know, when you hear like U.S. hegemony, you might. You might take the you, you might think I'm coming from like uh, anti-establishment or kind of Marxist perspective or something like that. I think here U.S. hegemony really refers to again we're talking about South Korean politics. We're talking about South Korean conservatives and, and liberals or progressives. The thing that has always divided South Korean conservatives and progressives have been this dates all the way back to the to prior to democratization, right? What's the should the government uh, you know prioritize kind of uh, strict rule over civil liberties and what should be the stance towards reunification with North Korea. And a big mm -hmm. player in all of that has been, you know, the U.S. role. And so when I say U.S. hegemony here, I'm referring primarily to how South Koreans perceive the role of the United States on the peninsula. And historically, that has been aligned with conservative camp. The United States was a big supporter, you know, of the Pak Chung mm. regime. And the United States had boots on the ground, has had boots on the ground in Korea for going on 75 years now. So, yeah, so that's what I mean by, you know, the U.S. military and economic presence and influence in the affairs of the Korean Peninsula and in determining, mm. you know, its political destiny or its political. Um, so it would seem to me that South Korean attitudes towards U.S. influence would map pretty perfectly or you know, pretty perfectly onto conservative or progressive political parties? I think that's how it's played out with human rights. You know, I think I agree for, for the most part, you know, that when it comes to security issues, when it comes to North, when it comes to particular issues where, which, where the U.S. has a has expressed a, a strong opinion or a vested interest in the Korean Peninsula, often their views align with the conservative camp. I mean, we would be mistaken to, to think that all, you know, kind of left and right politics in Korea align with left, right politics in America. But Right, yeah. but at least on these, uh, at least on these key issues of the view of optimal reunification with the North and political stance in the region and and the military issue, these kind of on these issues, yeah, I do think they they map pretty well. Now it seemed to me that for a long time, or at least uh, from the time that I started observing it in the late 1990s and the early 2000s, it seemed to me that the South Korean progressives were not really interested in talking about human rights and particularly human rights abuses in North Korea. But I was interested to learn from your paper that that wasn't always the way. In fact, in 1994, it was the, the liberal opposition that held a North Korean human rights symposium, one of the first big, big public events on this topic that wasn't run by the government. Yeah, I think the the, the, the progressives have, the, the liberals have all, because they were interested in, you know, humanitarian aid and they were interested in the kind of engagement with the North, they were pushing this, what we might think of as the, the leftist version of human rights, the, the economic, social and cultural rights. And they were, they had all, they had been interested in that, that far, be, far earlier than the, than the right kind of picked up on the civic and political rights as a, before they showed interest in that. And I think, I think before we go on any further, like, mm -hmm. 
when we talk about human rights in North Korea and you say, oh, we, you know, we think the left hasn't been involved in human rights or whatnot. I think a big part of our kind of semantics yeah. around human rights have been influenced by kind of historical outcomes in the last 20 years, right? Which is that these days, we, when we say human rights, we tend to associate human rights with the civic and political variety of human rights. Yeah, the ones you mentioned before, the freedom of expression, freedom of religion, freedom of political organization, that kind of thing. Right, right. And so because historically that kind of branch of human rights has become the dominant branch, like we now, mm. now when we say human rights, we tend to just assume CPR, right? And then it, yeah. when we're referring to ESCR, you know, these economic, social, and cultural rights, we, we tend to use uh, language like humanitarian aid or something and not link it to, we tend not to use mm -hmm. the language of human rights, you know? So I, I, I think the, the, the so language food, of human clothing rights and shelter like, that would fit into, into the ESCR, right? That's right. Yeah, that's right. right. And, and cultural exchanges and yeah. Yeah. What, what about things like due process of law and not being imprisoned in a, in a concentration camp, where would that fit in? I think CPR would definitely claim that right? anytime the state is kind of infringing on your on your political rights, I guess that would be probably lumped. That would be lumped with the CPR. Yeah. yeah. Now, the last few years, I'm sure you're aware, the interest in North Korea and publicly expressed concern about North Korean human rights across the broad spectrum of the South Korean public has actually dropped considerably. The percentage of people under the age of 40 who are interested in North Korea and Korean unification is, is lower than ever. Uh, Kinu does these studies every year, and you find that you know, if you graph it, the numbers are really shrinking. Do you have an explanation for that? Does that somehow, how to, in the framework of partisan politics, how can we explain the drop of interest in, in North Korea and North Korean human rights? Sure. I think, you know, the, the, the interest kind of peaked in the early, I would say in 2013, 2014, because I think the, the, the partisan politics kind of played out in the domestic arena. It played out in the United States and it played out in the United Nations. And I think it, it kind of culminated in the um, uh, United Nations Commission for Human Rights report on North Korea, report on human rights in North Korea, which came out in 2013. I think it was approved in 2014. And then followed by the passage of the, 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 human, the North Korea Human Rights Act in South Korea. And the United States had already passed the North Korean Human Rights Act, I think, you know, 10 years earlier. And the, and the, the left had kind of resisted the progress of this report and also the passage of these human rights acts. But, you know, once these, once these acts were passed and the reports were written and published, the conservative human rights, North Korean human rights movement had kind of reached the limits of what you could achieve through legal avenues, right? So once you establish legally in all ways possible in like national legislation and in the United Nations, you know, this commission report, what more can you do short of recommending, you know, Kim Jong-un to The Hague or, you know, some kind of military intervention. So, mm. so I think that, you know, this, this kind of played out in, in all in legal venues and all, on all levels and the conservatives kind of won that, that those battles. And then there was nothing more really that, you know, that the legal, that, you know, there were no more legal remedies that could be taken short of more radical forms of intervention. And so I think that's why that's when the partisan politics kind of fizzled was because the conservatives had kind of achieved their aims as far as they could go. Right. And there was, there was nothing more for the, the, the left to kind of oppose. And there were more, there were no more kind of check checkpoints, you know, for the right to kind of pursue. So, you know, it just kind of, I, I think the North Korean human rights movement in general, like since, since the passage of the 
UN Commission report have just kind of the, the funding has dried up in, in to a, to a large extent, and uh, yeah. I think you know it's more or less kind of over at this point. I mean, so so this year, which is the the tenth anniversary of the UN Commission of Inquiry report, you're, you're if I understand you correctly, you're basically saying that commission uh, or the report by the commission ten years ago was really the high watermark of uh, of interest in North Korean human rights, and once that was completed. As you say, there's nothing really else to do. In you know, there's no other remedies through uh, through legal avenues. That's where interest peaked, and after that, it, it's it's dropped off. Is is that pretty much it? Yeah, yeah. I think you know the the right kind of achieved this consensus in the U.S. and Korea and kind of global. You know, at the UN, that you know, okay, North Korea is a bad actor. You know, they 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 repress human rights. Okay, like you know, a majority has consensus has been achieved. You know, and and what are you going to do about it now, right? So I think that was, yeah, that was the high watermark of, of like organizational activity in the North Korean human rights movement. And since then, it's kind of, you know, you still have, organizations are still active, you know, Link sure. is still active and, and, uh, and uh, HMKR uh, in, in DC are still active, but I think their funding has gone down and their activities have gone down. The number of, and defector-led organizations have kind of pivoted away from human rights to do other types of things now. So, mm. Yeah. So how does a, a particular partisan stance on both U.S. hegemony and therefore approaches to North Korean human rights, how does that determine what kind of approach different people and NGOs and political parties want to take on how to achieve an improvement in whichever area of human rights they view as most important or most urgent, whether that be civil and political rights on the one hand or economic, social and cultural rights on the other? If you're on the... If you're on the right, you know, if you're if you're a conservative legislator in South Korea, again, then, you know, your your identity, your your stance on North Korean human rights is secondary right, to your primary identity as a conservative, right, which is determined by your favoring, you know, you favor strong U.S. military presence on the peninsula, you favor uh, a more adversarial stance towards North Korea. So how will that affect your view of North Korean human rights? If that's if that's your political stance or your political identity as a conservative, then you're going to favor more a critical view of the North Korean government, and so you're going to tend to assume a more favor the CPR approach, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and if you're and if you're on the left, if you're progressive and you've spent your you know your days as a student protester, you know back in the '80s, and then you know as a as a as a progressive uh, legislator in Korea now, and you you see kind of U.S. presence on the on the peninsula as, you know, uh, this kind of legacy of supporting South, you know, dictatorship in South Korea, and you, and you would like the troops to leave, right? You have, the, maybe you have some, some kind of anti-American uh, stance or you, and you favor engagement with North Korea, then, then you're- The North Korean government, right? Inform, right, right, with the North so Korean government. So working together then, with the North Korean government, uh, doing things through North Korean government channels, that kind of thing. Exactly. Then, then you know, what kind of what which version or flavor of North Korean human rights would you favor? You would favor the the ESCR. You know, so it's your 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 primary kind of fundamental political alliance uh, allegiances or kind of orientation is going to determine which form of human rights you favor for North Korea. Well, also how you try to make an improvement and, of and the strategies. Right? That's yeah, the strategies. Right, right. Yeah, and the strategies that you. That's right. Yeah. So. In your paper, tell us, uh, you, you use this phrase contentious strategies in North Korean human rights. Tell us a little bit about what does contentious strategies mean and what are some examples of those contentious strategies? The 
Contentious strategies, I think, are strategies undertaken by the political right, both in the United States and in South Korea, to use suppression of human rights in North Korea, the failure of the North Korean government to ensure you know, human rights of its citizens as a way to criticize the regime and as a way to kind of leverage the regime or compel the regime to conform to whatever you know, US or Korean like, political uh, goals are. So I think initially, you know, this is, this, these strategies have kind of been ratcheted up over time, over mm -hmm. this time period that we were talking about, uh, the early 2000s up until you know, 2013, 2014. And in the, in the early stages, it was just this naming and shaming, you know, we would say, you know, just kind of call North Korea out, oh, they're, you know, violating human rights. Over time, you know, we added sanctions to the mix. We added North Korean human rights were securitized in the sense that North Korean human rights were linked to the North Korean nuclear program. So those, when those, you know, those two issues were not uh, originally linked, but during the six party talks and the, the North, North Korean nuclear crisis, those issues were actually linked by the United States and South and South Korean conservatives. And so that's what we mean by, you know, securitization. Uh, so that securitization means linking human rights issues to the issues of, of nuclear weapons and, and uh, disarmament and that sort of thing. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So, and, and once, once you link, you know, North Korean human rights to the nuclear politics, now, you know, it takes on this whole, uh, kind of security and kind of militant perspective. You know, and and then once those were linked, then you had these kind of legal, you know, legal remedies. Uh, you know, the um, passage of the North Korean Human Rights Acts in in U.S. and in South Korea, and the pursuit of this, uh, the eventually this uh, the, the the UN United Nations Commission the inquiry on North Korean Human Rights Report. So these are all strategies uh, that were kind of they were you know that were es escalated from rhetoric to very strong rhetoric and security securitization all the way up to kind of legal remedies, sanctions, and... And, and these are, the, these are the, the strategies that North Korea would call hostile, a hostile approach, uh, hostile stance right. towards yeah. itself, right? Now, you've also mentioned encouraging defections in your paper. Can you tell us a bit about that? What, is, what does it mean? I mean, do, in, do defectors need encouragement? <laughs> I, you know, I, it's, it's hard to know. It's hard to trace back if you talk to North Koreans who've come to South Korea, it's it's very hard to parse intentionality going back to when they were in North Korea because they passed through so many. So if if a if a North Korean defector is if arrives in South Korea, they've mm -hmm. you know at some point they cross the border into China in most cases, and then in many cases they stayed in China for several years, and then at some point they may have crossed into a third country like Laos or Thailand, and then and then came, or Mongolia, and then came into South Korea. It's not clear. You know, I mean, when North Korean citizens leave the country, that they, you know, the South Korea, that their goal is to defect politically, or that their goal is to come to South Korea, especially in the early now. Now it's a little bit different because you have mm -hmm. this kind of, you know, migration chains and whatnot, family members. But in the early days, you know, you had a lot of uh, North Koreans just crossing into China to do kind of to work and and mm -hmm. kind of shuttle back and forth and just for economic reasons. At what point did they decide that they're going to leave China and come to South Korea or you know, so I don't, I don't know. You know, I mean, basically, it comes down to yeah, it, some groups yeah. are accused of uh, of trying to lure North Koreans out of North Korea en masse to to in this way bring about more defections uh, and therefore what perhaps bring about change or instability in North Korea. Right, that's sort of the the sum total of it, as I understand it. I mean, that's the yeah. I think that's the that's the the logic on the left, uh, the logic on the right. Right, mm -hmm. the logic on the right is that if we can encourage enough North Koreans 
to defect that that accomplishes a few purpose, you know a few goals on in, in terms of like south korea and, and in terms of like western media that demonstrates that north korea is a place that people don't want to live you know that, that that it's a place that they they want to defect from so you know mm. that's a, a kind of a media a media victory if you can do that but it also there's also a more kind of strategic outcome which is that if enough north koreans leave you know that it will like destabilize the mm. north korean the north korean regime so which hints at the idea that regime change may also be a uh, an actual goal of people who are supporting civil and political rights, right? But clearly, clearly. So, I mean, this is this is where the you know the the kind of right right side the, the strategies you know to encourage defection on the right are mm. from a human rights perspective may seem a little disingenuous because you know you're you're kind of using defectors for the for the aims of you know regime mm. destabilization, right? And and also encouraging defection may actually uh, encouraging defection publicly and vocally may may actually make things harder for for North Koreans living in China, right? So you know on the surface you you might be saying you know we're encouraging defection to make their to improve their lives, mm-hmm. but the, but the reality of it you know if you if you're drawing attention to this issue you know you're you're embarrassing China uh, right you're forcing China's hand. If you weren't if you weren't drawing attention to this in Western media, China might might just be able to kind of let this go or let it, you know. Mm. But if you're kind of calling attention to it, then 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 they're you know kind of respond and react by cracking down, and they may actually the the, the net effect may actually be a decrease in in human rights of North Koreans like living in in precarious you know North Koreans living in China. Yeah. Now, what about defectors who are already or re- refugees or defectors from North Korea who are already living in South Korea? They can certainly be affected by this politicization or this partisanship of uh, of North Korean human rights issues too, can't they? And I remember hearing um, during the last administration, the Moon Jae-in administration, there were North Korean refugees living here who uh, who felt that they were being silenced or, or told to sort of keep out of the way and not talk about North Korean human rights issues publicly. So how, do, how are they affected by this politicization? Exactly right. I think, and this is where, this is where I want to make my political views very clear. Mm. Although we've talked about these uh, contentious strategies, which the right employs to kind of, you know, criticize North Korea, I, the left is not uh, free of blame in this partisan conflict, right? So I, I don't want to come down as a, you know, I, pr- I probably come down as sounding, you know, as if I favor the ESCR over CPR, or I favor the left over the right, or I'm critical of the right. But this is where I think where the where this partisan uh, partisan uh, um, divide over human rights. Places it ends up placing blame on both sides, right? Mm. And, and this is where you know that that when when North Korean defectors come to South Korea, if the left was you know truly sincere uh, about kind of improving the the plight of North Koreans, you would think that that would extend to North Korean defectors living in the South. Right? Mm. But this this is where once once defectors come to the South, it, it tends to be the right. It tends to be conservative North Korean human rights groups who embrace these defectors. Albeit for you know some of it might be genuine concern for human rights and for, mm-hmm. for these defectors, but it's but another part of it is you know it's to their political to further their political aims to kind of use these their these narratives and these stories and you know to kind of further the the, the criticism of the north, but the left is equally you know the the left has kind of consistently um, ignored these groups and not and tried not to um, engage with them uh, has 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 not supported. Um, you know, a lot of uh, funding or assistance uh, tr- traditionally compared mm. to the right. Uh, and again, this this is this goes with you know why would they do that? They would do that because they don't want to be seen as encouraging north you know defector. They don't want to be seen as encouraging defection. 
mm-hmm. uh, and they don't want to be seen as uh, uh, supporting um, or you know giving support to the to North Korean defectors who might you know turn around and criticize the North Korean government. So, mm. you know, but in the consequence of that is that you know the the like the left um, kind of turns a blind eye to the to the very you know humanitarian, economic, social, cultural needs of North Korean defectors living in South Korea. Yeah. Yeah, and I also wonder where uh, where South Korean human rights fit into this discussion. Because during the the military dictatorships, it was the the student demonstrators and the labor movements and those on the progressive side of South Korean politics who were fighting for human rights in South Korea. And I'm talking about precisely those civil and political rights, right? The right to organize, the right to have freedom of expression, the right to have a different political view, the, the right not to be put in a uh, prison camp for your political beliefs. What's happened there? Yeah, I mean, this is this is the this is the paradox at the key of of my paper, and just kind of at the key of my experience with North Korean human rights. Because, you know, when I first went to South Korea, oh no, not when I first went to South, when I first started, uh, uh, when I went when I went to North Korean, uh, sorry, when I went to South Korea in 2012 to study, you know, on a Fulbright to 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 meet North Koreans, uh, defectors, and to, to I wasn't specifically interested in you know North Korean human rights at the time, but but I was very surprised to find, you know, again, this is 2012. This is kind of the, near the peak of the of interest in human rights mm. in South Korea. Uh, I was I was very surprised to find that the organizations who were, you know, uh, supporting and promoting uh, North Korean defectors in the South were conservatives and not uh, and not liber- and not liberals. And you know, yeah. and I thought, well, you know, historically we have thought, as you said, that that you know it, it has been liberals who were kind of pushing for humanitarian rights and kind of, you know, criticizing like uh, repressive regimes and whatnot. So why, why on the issue of North Korean human rights is it flip-flopped? You know, why is it that, you know, for Korean, during the democratization period, you know, the, the, the liberals were, were pressing for civic and political rights. They were criticizing the South Korean regime, right? And it was the conservatives who, who were downplaying uh, human rights abuses by the South Korean government. Mm. Now, you know, fa- fast forward 30 years, is on the issue of North Korean human rights. Now it's the opposite, right? Now it's yeah. now it's uh, now it's the the right who's criticizing, you know, civic and political, uh, the absence of civic civic and political rights in North Korea, and it's liberals who are who are downplaying these rights violations by the North Korean government, right? And who are kind of ignoring uh, South Korean or North Korean defectors in the South. So it this is this is where this is why I think what what is consistent from the 80s to you know from the fight against dictatorship in the south to north korean human rights today what is consistent in these groups mm-hmm. their, their attitude towards north korea, to, towards human rights in general has not been consistent right as we said it's right. kind of it's flip flop so the question is what is consistent what right. is consistent here yeah. it comes it's attitudes towards us hegemony isn't it so it's, if, it's if, attitude, if you were yes. if you were against us hegemony and us uh, interference in south korean politics in the 1980s then you were in favor of civic and political rights uh, yes. And if you're still against that now, then you're in favor of economic, social, and cultural rights in North Korea. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So it, it's really so the uh, the determining factor here in both of those cases comes back to uh, U.S. involvement. That's right. Yeah. And, and your and your stance, you know, your core identity as a uh, as a liberal or as a as a conservative in South Korea, you know, your core partisan identity. That's the thing that is consistent. And yeah. it just happens to, depending on which side of, you know, which government, which regime you're looking at or whose rights you're looking at, yeah, you can flip-flop. Yeah. 
Right, right. So th there are a, a, a very, very small number of examples of political activists in South Korea who who have remained consistent over the years. So who, for example, fought for civic and political rights in South Korea during the military dictatorship and who now agitate for the same civic and political rights in North Korea. But by remaining a consistency on which rights they're, they're agitating for, presumably they've made a change on how they view uh, U.S. hegemony and that they weren't okay with in the beginning, but now they're okay with it. Yeah, I think when I first encountered these these uh, legislators, and we're talking about maybe you can you can rattle off a few of the names. I yeah, Hatte Gyeong is is, is yeah. one of the legislators in the People's Power Party, and and not a lawmaker, but a uh, an activist, uh, Kim Yong Hwan, right. who was a a student underground activist who met Kim Il Sung back in the 1980s when he was a true believer, uh, and now he's very much not, and he agitates for uh, you know helping North Koreans with civic and political rights. So there, there's just two off the top of my head. Yeah. I think when you know when I was kind of uh, immersed in South Korean politics at the, the nexus of South Korean politics and human rights, you know, back in 2012, 2013, 2014, these people seemed kind of strange. You know, they mm -hmm. they seem kind of strange. Like uh, from the perspective of South Korean partisan politics, they just seem like they're totally flip flopping. You know, they they have no kind of underlying allegiance to the to the to their party or faction or, or whatever. But I think as I've done this paper, I feel like mm -hmm. these these people have been vindicated in the sense that they they remain true. What what motivated them from the very beginning until now was not their partisan leaning, you know, left or right. It was their particular mm -hmm. stance on North Korea. They, they are the minority of, of legislators and political activists whose primary right. identity was on their stance over human rights, not on their partisan identity. Right? And so I think from that perspective, we can, we, this paper kind of vindicates their well, at least we can understand like what mm -hmm. what was their logic. You know, they felt like they had they had chosen uh, a particular stance on human rights, and the party had abandoned them. You know, right. they felt like right. They they were pushing civic and political rights all along, and then at some point the left stopped doing that when when came to North Korea because you know the U.S. was pushing on the other side, and they would they didn't they didn't want to be you know aligned with that, and they they didn't want to be aligned with. Uh, you know, a uh, kind of a negative uh, stance towards the North Korean government and so on and so forth. So, yeah, I think I have a much, I have a lot more empathy or appreciation for their kind of political journey these last, yeah. these last, this last. Jacob, can you think of any organizations who push for all human rights, regardless of whether they're uh, CPR or ESCR in the North Korean situation? Yeah, in the North Korean I think that the clearest example that I've seen is has been the British government. You know, the British government puts out an annual report of, of, of the state of human rights in North Korea, and they, they don't hold any punches. You know, they are very critical of the North Korean government's human rights record. But at the same time, they are uh, engaging with North Korean government. They 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 have a, a an embassy, a North Korean embassy in, in London. Yeah. And they, they support, you know, United Nations uh, efforts for food distribution and medical aid and all those things. So mm. I think that's one of the examples. We don't see, I don't think, there's not an organization that I can, I guess, yeah, I think, I guess maybe in South Korea there and the U.S. there might be some smaller organizations which are mm -hmm. less involved in partisan politics. Like I think we talked about uh, in, in the past, we talked about maybe good friends. Uh, I don't know how active they are today, but I... Right. I can't seem to find them online. If there is anyone listening who's yeah. either from good friends or familiar with good friends, do please put them in touch with me because I'd love to have somebody on the show. Uh, Jacob, moving on to our last couple of questions here. In your conclusion, you write that, quote, Daniel Chubb and Andrew Yo have formulated the most pragmatic prescription for promoting North Korean human rights. 
try a little bit of everything. Specifically, they argue in favor of three approaches, the top-down legal and institutional approach, the bottom-up approach of subversive tactics, and humanitarian engagement focusing on social and economic rights, end quote. What do you think? Do you agree with their approach? I think they're right uh, in theory, <laughs> but mm -hmm. I, 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 but again, if, if, if the core issue here is not, you know, again, the whole point of the paper is the core issue over the division is not people's stance on, on North Korean human rights or North Korean human rights strategies, right? Strategies for achieving that. The core issue is partisan politics, right? So I don't think that uh, these two groups sitting down, the left and the right sitting down and, and, and uh, negotiating a, a common strategy for North Korean human rights is really possible, right? I think what, I think the, we have to address the underlying division um, which is, you know, what should our attitude be towards North Korea, right? Is, is, can we trust North Korea? Can we, do we engage with North Korea, right? How much, we have to address these kind of underlying divisions in our view of, you know, what should our orientation be to the, to the North Korean government? And, you know, what should the role of, of the United States be in there? What should the role of the United States be on the Korean Peninsula? Those things, I think, have to be included in the conversation about North Korean human rights because at the at the end of the day that's what mm. has has driven you know people's stances on the issue. So, right. So actually, you, you're suggesting make U.S. hegemony and U.S. influence part of the discussion of on uh, on approaches gotta, to yeah, North Korean human rights. If you're going to try to get the left and right together to talk about it, yeah. you have to talk about the politics first. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, that's. That's certainly a, uh, an interesting approach. Let's see if it gains traction. I wish you all the best with that, Jack. <laughs> uh, thank you for coming on the NK News podcast today. Listeners can look out for your paper title, titled Decamping the Partisans, U.S. Hegemony and South Korea's Divisive Discourse on North Korean Human Rights. They can find it in Korean Studies online or offline. I will put a link in the show notes. And they can find more of your work and interests at souljake.com. Thanks very much, Jacob. Thanks, Jacob. It's been a pleasure. Attention North Korea portfolio professionals, are you in need of more than just sloppy and spotty South Korean news coverage on the DPRK? If so, I present to you NK Pro. Born from the established news gathering reputation of NK News, NK Pro leverages staff experience and top-notch technology to provide subscribers with superior knowledge and tools to achieve their goals. Expect daily analysis, exclusive tools, and a suite of research tools that cover everything from North Korean state media to the whereabouts of DPRK vessels and aircraft. How cool is that? In a world where the landscape of North Korea seems unknowable to many, NK Pro cuts through the noise and provides you with the quality, reliability, and timeliness you need. Stay ahead, stay informed, and master the landscape with NK Pro. Trust me, it's a game changer. Interested? Visit nknews.org professionals to claim your free 30-day trial of NK Pro. Once again, that's nknews.org professionals. Ladies and gentlemen, that brings us to the end of our podcast episode for today. Our thanks go to Brian Betts and Alana Hill for facilitating this episode and to our post-recording producer genius, Gabby Magnuson, who cuts out all the extraneous noises, awkward silences, bodily functions, and fixes the audio levels. Thank you and listen again next time. <laughs>